Alrighty, folks, so today's podcast, we are going to be talking about the American Revolution, one of my favorite, favorite topics, of course. So let's get started here. We're going to start with the Declaration of Independence, basically, uh, starting at the Second Continental Congress. So the delegates that are at the Second Continental Congress, they meet in Philadelphia in early May 1775. It's just a month after Lexington and Concord hits. And they got to decide whether, you know, to declare independence or try and reconcile with Parliament and the King, George III, if, you know, what's going to be the best way to try and protect, you know, the freedom, the liberties of all the colonies. During the spring and summer of 1775, there were a lot of strong advocates of independence. They still weren't really seeking a complete and total separation from Britain. And so if they're going to try and really achieve independence, the radicals, as they were known at this time, they had to find some way to create more agreement between the American public. So the moderates and conservatives, you know, they have a lot of, you know, concerns and misgivings about independence that, you know, says, you know, it has to come kind of slowly. So to try and kind of bring these people along, Congress at this time, they adopt the Olive Branch Petition. And the Olive Branch Petition, it's going to be in July 1775. This affirms American loyalty to George III. It asks the king to disavow all the policies of, you know, his main ministers that oversee all policy in the colonies. At the same time, Congress issues a declaration denying that the colonies were aiming at independence. Less than a month earlier, though, Congress had authorized creating a rebel militia force, a rebel military force known as the Continental Army. And they also start issuing paper money to start paying the troops. And it seems kind of puzzling to a lot of British politicians, you know, that you have this Congress that's suing for peace while simultaneously preparing for war. And they weren't even trying to understand this. So, George III proves very stubborn. You know, he refuses to even receive the Olive Branch petition. By the end of this year, Parliament shuts down all trade with the colonies and orders the Royal Navy to seize colonial merchant ships on the high seas. In November of 1775, Virginia's royal governor, Lord Dunmore, he's going to offer freedom to any slaves that will join the British. During January 1776, he's going to order the shelling of Norfolk, Virginia, and it reduces the town to rubble. And British, at this time, you know, they it starts withering down the cause of reconciliation within Congress and the colonies. Support for independence gains a lot more momentum following an overwhelming reception of the pamphlet Common Sense, written by Thomas Paine. This comes out in January of 1776. In June of that year, Virginia has a statesman named Richard Henry Lee that offers the motion 
that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states and that all political connection between them and the state of great britain is and ought to be totally dissolved it's a very very radical bold step so congress they postpone a final vote on this motion until july and some opposition was still kind of lingering among uh the middle colonies at this time, like Pennsylvania and uh, like not quite Jersey area because that's New England, but Pennsylvania is going to be the main Middle Atlantic kind of colony at this time. So just think kind of in that area. But they decide to have a committee appointed to write a declaration of independence, but they need time to complete the work. And so the committee is going to include some of the main delegates in Congress, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, Robert Livingston from New York. But the man that's going to do most of the writing and drafting of the declaration of independence is going to be a young planter or farmer and lawyer from Western Virginia. And this will be none other than Thomas Jefferson. Now, he's just 33 years old at the time. He's pretty young. And he decides to withdraw to his lodgings on the outskirts of Philadelphia. He pulls out a portable writing desk and writes the statement that will explain American independence to a candid world, you know, in everyday language for the most part. So there's a very brief opening section where Jefferson sets forth the general justification of revolution and that invokes self-evident truths of human inequality or human equality and unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these natural rights have been endowed to everyone by their creator. And so there's no need to appeal to the narrow claim of the rights of Englishmen. So the first part of the declaration is serving notice that the Americans no longer consider themselves English. The second and longer section denies England to have any authority in the colonies. It has a very detailed history of American grievances against the British Empire. The Declaration refers only once, though, to Parliament specifically. So instead, what the Declaration does is it blames George III for everything, for this long train of abuses and usurpations designed to try and achieve absolute despotism. That's the language of it. And so... This is very convincing to most of the delegates at the Second Continental Congress. And Congress will officially adopt the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. And this is the day we still celebrate every year as Independence Day, right? It is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And the very first gentleman to sign the Declaration of Independence was John Hancock, right? Everybody knows John Hancock because it is the largest signature on the Declaration. He wanted to make sure everybody would be able to see his signature. So the colonies follow the course set by the common sense into the storms of independence. So they, it's kind of like there's no going back now. And since the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain had added to its overseas dominion a very vast, diverse number of subjects that were formerly under French rule. You know, Native Americans, French Catholic Canadians, people of African descent in the Caribbean. 
And then there's India, you know, and India is part Hindu, part Muslim. Most of it is ruled by the East India Company. And so what better, more efficient way to regulate this huge empire than to bring all its parts under the rule of a sovereign parliament, right? So British officials take it for granted that the colonials could not be granted the same rights as Britain's. You know, an empire that's very firmly based on hierarchy is needed to hold all this chaos at bay. So most of the colonial elites agreed with the logic that position, you know, with East India Company officials, Bengal politicians, Canadian traders, landlords, and only the leading men in Britain's original 13 colonies aren't going to go along with this. So the sentiment for independence is not universal, though. Those who would not go back the rebellion, these are supporters of the King of Parliament, maybe about one-fifth of the population in 1775, they proclaim themselves loyalists. Their rebel opponents, though, will label them as Tories. So this division makes the revolution a conflict that pits Americans against each other, not just the British. And so the King and Parliament, they command the strongest support in colonies that have been racked by a lot of internal conflict earlier in the 18th century. And in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, tenants that lived on land controlled by proprietors that were rebelling from time to time over quitrants or rents that they have, are required to pay to their landlords. There's a lot of tenant riots that plague New Jersey in the 1740s. New York, their Hudson Valley manners, they take up arms in 1757, even more violently in 1766. In the Carolinas, there's a lot of settlers in western counties that take matters into their own hands when eastern legislators ignore their needs and tend to serve out vigilante justice. In South Carolina, taking over corrupt county courts in North Carolina, it's a lot of stuff, right? So all these quarrels reignite during the revolution with old enemies taking opposite sides. So to win support against Carolina's rebels, whose ranks include most of the wealthy coastal planters, Western loyalist leaders played on a lot of ordinary settlers' resentments of the privileged Easterners. So a lot of these grievances dating back into the 1760s, it also influences the revolutionary allegiances, uh, former land rioters in New York and New Jersey. So if their old landlord opponents opted for the rebel cause, then the tenants would take up loyalism. So some other influences uh, foster allegiance to Britain, like government officials that owe their jobs to the empire, major city merchants that depend on British trade, Anglicans, members of the Church of England that are living outside the South. They retain very strong ties to the parent country. Loyalists are also disproportionately represented among recent immigrants from the British Isles. So many that take up the King's cause didn't lack sympathy for the resistance, but loyalist leaders like Joseph Galloway, Daniel Leonard, they had opposed the Stamp Act back in 1765. They disapproved 
of imperial policy after that. And it's not going to be until the crisis reaches a big fever pitch in 1774 that more colonials start casting their lot with the king. And worse than British taxation was radicalism of American resistance, like dumping tea into Boston Harbor, uh, forming of the association, defying royal authority. So all these acts of defiance touch what was for loyalists the raw nerve. It's that deep-seated fear of the divisions and instability of colonial society. So without the British around to maintain order, differences among Americans are going to result in civil war. And so it's going to take passage of less than a century for these fears to be borne out by events which will be the actual American Civil War. You know, the Union gets divided, North and South are locked, and, you know, brothers fighting each other, things like that. And we're going to talk about that much later. We'll get around to it. But, you know, even though they are a minority, loyalists never become numerous enough anywhere to pose a serious threat to the revolution. So a more formidable threat will be the British Army. The greatest threat of all are going to be the very Americans that claim that they want independence. But the question is, will they fight for it? Will they actually fight for it? So in the summer of 1775, Americans that wanted to remain neutral probably outnumbered either loyalists or rebels. And from the standpoint of just survival, staying neutral makes more sense than fighting for independence. Even the biggest advocates of American rights have reason to harbor doubts given the odds against the rebel colonists defeating the armed forces of the British Empire. So mm, perhaps no friend of American liberty sees more clearly how slim the chances of a rebel victory are than George Washington. June 1775, he is 43 years old at this time. He's attending the deliberations of the Second Continental Congress. He's dressed, you know, in his officer's uniform. And he's the most celebrated American veteran of the Seven Years' War. He remains young enough to lead a campaign. But better still, you know, as a Southerner, he can bring his region into what, prior to this, at this point, had remained mostly... New England's fight. It was mainly, you know, up in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, for the most part. And so Congress, they very quickly and readily appoint him commander-in-chief of this newly created Continental Army. So Washington finds himself only a month later looking to bring order to the rebel forces around Boston. And he knows he faces a big foe, pretty formidable foe, uh, the king's troops are seasoned professionals. An aristocratic officer uh, corps is very drilled. They're disciplined, rank-and-file soldiers, men that are drawn mainly from the bottom of British society, but they get turned into a very savage fighting machine. And so at the height of this campaign in America, reinforcements bring the number of British troops to about 50,000 and that is strengthened by about 30,000 Hessian mercenaries from Germany. And the Hessians, it's part of a region of Germany. At the time, like Germany wasn't uh, quite united into one solid state at this point, but Hessians are known to be just 
brutal. Brutal fighters. I mean, no no holds barred. And there's a lot of support of about half the ships in the British Navy, which is the largest in the world at this time. And Washington is more modest about, you know, the army under his command. He has a lot to be modest about. You know, at first, Congress recruits his fighting force of about 16,600 rebel regulars, which is the Continental Army. They recruit them from the ranks of local New England militia bands. Enlistments did swell and increase briefly during this patriotic enthusiasm of 1775. But for the rest of the war, Washington and the Continental Army suffer from constant chronic shortages of men and supplies. Most men at this time preferred to fight instead as member of just local militia units, you know, the irregular troops that would turn out and support the regular army whenever British forces come close to their neighborhoods. And so there's a lot of reluctance to join the Continental Army that creates a lot of difficulties for Washington and for Congress. And Washington can't really create an effective fighting force out of militias that just muster occasionally or with these men that enlist for very short stints in the Continental Army. But his desire for having a professional military establishment clashes with the preferences of a lot of these Republican leaders. You know, they feared having these massive standing armies like the British had and they tend to idealize citizen soldiers, you know, men of selfless civic virtue that volunteer whenever needed as being the backbone of common defense. And only the dwindling number of volunteers gradually overcomes Republican fears of these standing armies. So September 1776, Congress sets the terms in the Continental Army at a minimum of three years or for the duration of the war, and they assign each state to raise a certain number of troops. They offer every man who enlists in the army a cash bounty and a yearly clothing issue. Enlistees for the duration are offered 100 acres of land as well. But the problem of recruitment still persists. Less than a year later, Congress recommends that the states adopt a draft, but Congress had no authority to compel the states to meet their troop quotas. Yeah, not good. But even in the summer of 1775, before enlistments fell off, Washington is worried. His Continentals were laying siege to the British-occupied Boston. Most officers have no real leadership. The men under their command were shirking and skirting their duties. They slip away from camp at night. They leave sentry duty before being relieved. They take pot shots at the British. They tolerate very filthy conditions in their camps. And Washington is really struggling to impose discipline on the Continentals. He's also attempting without success to rid himself of the women of the army. And American men, when they went off to fight, the wives usually stayed at home. And women then have the sole responsibility of running farms and businesses, raising kids, keeping the house together and everything. And they help to try and supply the troops by sewing clothing, making blankets, saving rags, lead weights for bandages and bullets. Other women on the home front organize relief for widows and orphans of soldiers. They might organize protests against merchants that hoarded supplies and commodities that are really scarce. But the wives of poor men who join the army are often left with no means to support their families. 
thousands of these women, like one for every 15 soldiers or so, follow after the troops. And they would get half rations for cooking and washing for the soldiers. After battles, they would tend to the wounded, bury the dead, scavenge the fields for clothing and equipment. So there was some gratitude, but Washington still doesn't really want them around because he's like, you know, I'm trying to impose discipline and order here and the men can't really focus if these women are all around. So at the same time he's trying to discipline the Continentals, Washington designs a defensive strategy to try and make up for their weakness. So to try and avoid exposing these raw troops on open ground against these guys that are superior in number and discipline, he plans to fight the British from strong defensive fortifications. With this goal in mind, in March of 76, Washington barricades his army on Dorchester Heights, which is an elevation commanding Boston Harbor from the south. And this allows American artillery to fire on the enemy warships. And it confirms a decision already made by the British to evacuate their entire army from Boston and set sail for Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is up in Canada. So Britain was trying to reclaim the colonies with a plan to kind of strangle, snuff out the resistance in Massachusetts. But by the spring of 1776, they see clearly more is going to be required than just a show of force against New England. So the situation calls for Britain to wage a true conventional war in America, you know, capture the major cities, crush the continental forces in decisive battle. And so military victory is what the British believe will allow them to restore political control and reestablish the imperial authority. So the first target on their minds is New York City. So General William Howe and Lord George Germain, the British officials that are now charged with overseeing the war, they choose this seaport for it being centrally located and they hope with having a large loyalist population there as well. Howe's army intends to move from New York City up the Hudson River, meet with the British troops under Sir General Sir Guy Carleton, commanding or coming south from Canada. And it's going to be like either the British drive will lure Washington into a major engagement, crush the Continentals, or if they're unopposed, the British offensive will cut America in two, snuff out the resistance to the south, and isolate New England, though. But unfortunately for the British, the strategy is, you know, a lot sounder than the men that are actually placed in charge of executing it. So concern for preserving manpower, it leads General Howe to caution, you know, when if he had been a little more daring, he would have just carried it out. And his brother, Admiral Lord Richard Howe, He's the head of the naval operations in America. Uh, he stopped short of pressing the British advantage as well because he has a personal desire for reconciliation. So the reluctance of the Howe brothers to fight kind of becomes the uh, formula for British frustration for about two years following this. By mid-August 1776, there's about 32,000 British troops including 8,000 Hessians, which is the largest expeditionary force of the 18th century, that face Washington's army of 23,000. And they have marched from Boston to take up positions on Long Island. 
and August 22nd, the Howe brothers launched their offense, pushing the rebel army back across the East River to Manhattan. After staying on Long Island for a month, the Howes again move into action, moving their forces to Kipps Bay, just a few miles south of Harlem. And when the British landed, the handful of rebel defenders at Kipps Bay fled straight into the wrath of Washington, who happened on the scene during the rout. For once, the general lost his habitual self-restraint. He flogged both officers and men with his riding crop. He came close to being captured himself. But the Howes remained luck reluctant to hit hard, occupying New York City, but letting Washington's army escape from Manhattan to Westchester County. So throughout the fall of 1776, General Howe's forces follow as Washington's were fleeing southward across New Jersey. On December 7th, the British uh, are closely following them, and the rebels cross the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Howe stops here, pulling back most of his army to sit out the winter in New York City, and he leaves the Hessians behind to hold the British line of advance along the New Jersey side of the Delaware River. And the retreat through New York and New Jersey uh, shriveled the rebel strength to only about 3,000 men. Washington decides this campaign of 1776 is not over. On a very snowy Christmas night, the Continentals float back across the Delaware River, which this is where the inspiration for that painting of Washington standing, you know, with one leg up and he's got crossed like a cape wearing his big commander's hat and they're in a boat crossing the Delaware River. This is kind of the inspiration for that. But they cross back across the Delaware River, pick their way over roads that are covered with ice and they finally sneak into the Hessian held Trenton, city of Trenton, New Jersey at eight in the morning and a thousand German soldiers that are still recovering from their very uh, spirited Christmas celebration. They get caught completely by surprise and they very quickly surrender and Washington's luck holds out on January 3rd, 1777, when the Continentals defeat the British troops on the outskirts of Princeton, New Jersey. During the winter of 76-77, the British lose more than battles. They alienated the civilians whose loyalties they were trying to really ensure. In New York City, the presence of the main body of the British Army brings shortages of food and housing, causes constant tension, between the soldiers and the city dwellers in the New Jersey countryside that's still held by the Hessians. The situation is more desperate. Forced to live off the land, the Germans arouse resentment among local farmers. They seize cattle, corn, oats, horses, everything. Like they're ransacking, especially the Hessians, they're ransacking and destroying homes and churches. They kidnap and rape young women. A lot of people that have been neutral and loyalists, they had had enough of the King's soldiers. Now they take their allegiance elsewhere. And bands of militia on Long Island, all along the Hudson River, all over New Jersey, rally now to support the Continentals. So by the summer of 1777, General Howe decided to try and goad the Americans into battle by capturing Philadelphia. 
in early August, the Redcoats disembark on the Maryland shore and head for Philadelphia. Washington engaged Hal twice uh, in September at Brandywine Creek. In October at Germantown, both times the rebels get beaten back. He was unable to prevent the British occupation of Philadelphia. But British occupation in Philadelphia creates a lot of hostility as this influx of troops jacks up prices for food, fuel, clothing, housing. Philadelphians complain of redcoats looting their shops, trampling all over their gardens, harassing them on the streets. Even worse, the British march through Maryland and Pennsylvania outrageous civilians that fled before the army and then returned to find their homes and barns stripped completely bare the crops and livestock are all gone everywhere general Howe's men go in the middle states they leave in their wake americans with a lot of compelling reasons to support the rebels now and worst of all just days after Howe marches his army into philadelphia there's another british commander in north america that surrenders his entire army to rebel forces at saratoga in new york so the calamity that befalls the British at Saratoga is the doing of a very uh, ambitious, glory-mongering general named John Burgoyne. Uh, after his superior officer, who was Sir Guy Carleton, uh, bungles a drive into New York in 1776, Burgoyne gets approval to command another attack from Canada. Following summer, he sets out from Quebec with a force of 9,500 redcoats, 2,000 women and children, and a baggage train that includes the commander's silver dining service, his dress uniforms, and numerous cases of champagne. His entourage is moving southward. There's a handful of Continentals and a horde of New England, New England militia that assemble several miles below Saratoga at Bemis Heights under the command of General Horatio Gates. And on September 19th, his Gates' rebel scouts uh, spy the bayonets of Burgoyne's force. Benedict Arnold at this time. Yeah, many of you probably know that name. He's a very, very brave young officer at this time. He led several thousand rebels into battle at a clearing at Freeman's Farm. By the end of the day, the British reinforcements finally pushed the rebels back from the battlefield, piled high with bodies of soldiers from both sides and Burgoyne tries to flee to Canada but he gets no further than Saratoga where he surrenders his army to Gates on October 17th so Saratoga changed everything with Burgoyne's surrender the rebels succeed now in convincing France that with a little help the Americans can reap the fruits of victory so now we're at the turning point of the war so France had been waiting for revenge against Britain ever since their defeat in the Seven Years' War. For some years, there had been a plot, you know, for trying to even up the score. And that was taking place in the mind of the French foreign minister, Charles Gravier de Bourgain. He reckons, you know, France might turn some discontented colonials into some pretty strong, willing allies against Britain. So Vergain wanted to make 
certain that the rift between Britain and its colonies isn't going to be reconciled and the rebels in America stand a fighting chance. So France had been secretly supplying the Continental Army with guns and ammunition since the spring of 1776, but Vergane won't go any further than this covert assistance. So Congress approaches their former French enemies with some caution, you know, while France, the leading Catholic monarchy in Europe, make common cause with the Republican rebels. A few years earlier, American colonials have fought against the French in Canada. Only recently, they had renounced a king, and for centuries, they had overwhelmingly adhered to Protestantism. So, but the string of defeats deals that have been dealt the Continental Army during 1776 convinces Congress that they need the French. In November of Congress... In November 1776, sorry, Congress appoints a three-member commission to negotiate not only aid from France, but also a formal alliance. The senior member was Benjamin Franklin, who <laughs> captivates all of Paris when he arrives with a uh, simple fur cap and a pair of spectacles. Uh, and Parisians start stamping Franklin's face on everything, from tops of snuff boxes to even the bottom of chamber pots. You know, they hail him as being a homespun sage. But Franklin understood that the mere popularity can't produce the alliance sought by Congress. You know, it's only news that Britain had surrendered an entire army at Saratoga that convinced Bergane the rebels can actually win. So in February 1778, France signs a Treaty of Commerce and Friendship and a Treaty of Alliance, which Congress approves in May. Under the terms of the treaties, both parties agreed to accept nothing short of independence for America. The alliance leaves the British no choice other than to declare war on France. Less than a year later, Spain will join France, hoping to recover territory they lost to England in earlier wars. So the revolution widens into a global war after 1778. Preparing to fight France and Spain dictates a new British strategy in America. So no longer can the British concentrate on just crushing the Continental Army. Instead, they're going to have to disperse their forces to fend off challenges all over the world. In May, Sir Henry Clinton replaces William Howe as being the commander-in-chief, and he receives orders to withdraw from Philadelphia and go up to New York City. Only 18 miles outside Philadelphia at Valley Forge, Washington and his Continentals are assessing their own situation. There's around 11,000 rebel soldiers that have passed the winter in this very uh, isolated spot, starving for want of food, freezing for lack of clothing, huddling in very miserable huts, and they hate the British that were just 18 miles away from them in Philadelphia. The army also curses their fellow citizens because their misery results from a lot of congressional disorganization, civilian indifference as well. Congress doesn't have the money to pay them or maintain the army. They also don't have an efficient system for dispensing provisions for the troops. So most farmers and merchants preferred to supply the British who would pay very handsomely than to do business with the financially strapped Congress. So what little did reach the army often was food too rancid to eat, clothing too rotten to wear. Around 2,500 people will perish at Valley Forge, being victims of cold, hunger, and disease. So why did civilians who support the rebel cause allow the army to suffer? 
probably because by the winter of 1777, the Continentals came mainly from social classes that received little consideration at any time. The respectful propertied farmers and artisans that had laid siege to Boston in 1775 stopped enlisting. Serving in their stead are single men in their teens and early 20s, some that joined the army just out of desperation, others who are drafted, others that are hired as substitutes for the affluent. Uh, landless sons of farmers, unemployed laborers, drifters, petty criminals, vagrants, indentured servants, slaves, even captured British and Hessian soldiers, all men with no other means and no other choice, all get swept into the Continental Army. So the social composition of the rebel rank and file came to resemble that of the British Army. You know, it's the great irony of the revolution you know, is a war to protect liberty and property is waged by those Americans who are the poorest and least free. The beginning of spring in 1778 brings a slight reprieve. You know, supplies arrive at Valley Forge. So does a fellow calling himself Baron von Steuben. He is a poor, penniless Prussian soldier. Prussia is another country near Germany. A small little city-state. Although Washington's men had shown, you know, spirit and resilience ever since Trenton, they still lacked discipline and training. So those defects and even more, von Steuben begins to remedy all this. Barking orders and spewing curses in German and French, the Baron and his translators drill the rebel regiments to march in formation, handle their bayonets like proper Prussian soldiers, and so by the summer of 1778, the morale rebounds among the soldiers. So kind of spoiling for action after this long winter, Washington's army, which is now numbering close to 13,500, they harass Clinton's army as they march overland from Philadelphia to New York. On June 28th at Monmouth Courthouse, there's a very long, confused battle that ends in a draw. Both armies retire for the night. Clinton's forces slip away to safety in New York City. Washington pursues, but he lacks the numbers to launch an all-out assault on New York City. So during the two hard winters that follow, a lot of resentments mount among the rank and file over spoiled food, inadequate clothing, errors in pay, or discrepancies in pay. The army retaliates with mutinies. And between 1779-1780, officers managed to stop uprisings in three New England regiments. But in January 1781, both the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines mutiny outright and march on Philadelphia where Congress had reconvened. Order returns only after Congress, after Congress promises back pay and provisions and Washington puts two ringleaders in front of a firing squad. So yeah, things are not as good <laughs> as people may have made it out to be. So the battles between Washington's Continentals and the British make the war in the West seemed by comparison a sideshow of attacks and counterattacks that just settle very little. American fighters like George Rogers Clark captured outposts like Kaskaskia and Vincennes without materially affecting the outcome of the war. The conflict sparks a lot of upheaval heaval in the West, both the, from dislocations of war, from disease that spread in the war's wake, and a lot of these disruptions are so widespread because the war for independence also became a war involving imperial powers of Britain, France, and Spain. 
these European powers in the United States also press Indian tribes to become allies and attack them when they don't. Caught in the crossfire, the Indian nations are pushed to the brink of their own civil war, splitting into pro-American or pro-British factions. Indians understood the pressures of war always threatened to deprive them of their homelands. So thousands flee a lot of raids and counter raids. Whole villages will be relocated. Hundreds make their way even beyond the Mississippi to seek shelter in territory claimed by Spain. So there's a lot of political instability that gets compounded by a smallpox epidemic that breaks out first among American troops besieging Quebec in 1775. The disease spreads to Washington troops in New England, then south along the coast. It eventually reaches New Orleans and will even even leap to Mexico City by the autumn of 1779. So from New Orleans, it spreads through fur traders up the Mississippi River, across the Central Plains, from New Spain northward as well. So by the time the pandemic burns out in 1782, over 130,000 die. So the Revolutionary War itself caused the deaths of around 8,000 soldiers while fighting in battle and another 13,000 from disease, including smallpox mortality. By 1779, most northern civilians along the eastern seaboard gain a respite from the war, but disease and military demands disrupt family economies throughout the countryside. Seasons of intense fighting draw men off into military service just when their labor was most needed on family farms. Wives and daughters are left to assume work of husbands and sons while coping with loneliness, anxiety, grief. Often enough, the disruptions, flight, and loss of family members leave some pretty lasting scars. Despite all these hardships, many women vigorously support the revolutionary cause in a variety of ways. The Daughters of Liberty join in harassing those who oppose the rebel cause. One outspoken loyalist finds himself surrounded by angry women who strip off his shirt, cover him with molasses, and plaster him with flower petals. In more genteel fashion, groups of well-to-do women collected not only money, but also medicines, food, and pewter to melt down for bullets. So by the autumn of 1778, the British had come to believe that their most vital aim or goal is to regain the colonies in the mainland south. The Chesapeake and the Carolinas are more profitable to the empire and more strategically important. You know, they're so much closer to the very rich British sugar islands in the West Indies. And so this is a southern strategy. And Clinton will dispatch forces to the Caribbean and Florida. The British will also lay plans for a new offensive drive into the Carolinas and Virginia. English politicians and generals believe that the war can be won in the South. Loyalists are numerous, they believe, especially in the backcountry where there's a lot of resentment of the seaboard, which is a rebel stronghold, would breed readiness among frontier folk to take up arms for the king at the first show of British force. And southern rebels, especially the vulnerable planters along the coast, can't afford to turn their guns away from their slaves. So, at least the British theorize, you know, all that's needed, they conclude, is for the British army to establish a beachhead in the south and then in league with the loyalists, drive northward, pacifying the population while pressing up the coast. So the Southern strategy works well for a short time in a very small place. 
In November 1778, Clinton sends 3,500 troops to Savannah, Georgia. The resistance in this tiny colony very quickly collapses. A large number of loyalists turn out to help the British. Encouraged by the success, the British move on to South Carolina. During the last days of 1779, an expedition under Clinton himself sets sail from New York City. Landing off the Georgia coast, his troops muck through the swamps to the peninsula lying between the Ashley and Cooper rivers. At the tip of that neck of land stands Charleston, and the British begin to lay siege. By then, there's an unseasonably warm spring that sets in, making the area a big haven for mosquitoes, and it's just kind of like hell on earth for the human beings. So, sweltering and swatting, the redcoats weighted down in their wooden uniforms, inched their siege works toward the city. By early May, Clinton's army had closed in. British shelling was setting fire to houses within the city, and on May 12th, Charleston surrendered. Clinton sails back to New York at the end of June 1780, leaving behind 8,300 redcoats to carry the British offensive northward to Virginia. And the man charged with leading this campaign is Charles, Lord Cornwallis. So Cornwallis's task in the Carolinas was complicated by a lot of bitter animosity between rebels and loyalists there. Many Carolinians had taken sides years before Clinton's conquest of Charleston. In the summer and fall of 1775, supporters of Congress and the new South Carolina revolutionary government mobbed, tortured, and imprisoned supporters of the king in the backcountry. These attacks only hardened the loyalist resolve. Uh, and But within a matter of months, there's a combined force of rebel militias from the coast and the frontier that managed to defeat the loyalist forces and the backcountry. So with the fall of Charleston in 1780, the loyalist movement on the frontier returns to life. Out of loyalist vengefulness and rebel desperation, issued the brutal civil war that sears the southern backcountry after 1780. Neighbors and even family members fought and killed one another as members of roaming rebel and Tory militias. Not good. So Cornwallis, when confronted with all this chaos, uh, he erred fatally. He does nothing to stop his loyalist allies or his own troops from mistreating civilians. And there's a growing number of civilians outraged by the king's men cast their lot with the rebels. And this upsurge of popular support enables a man named Francis Marion, known as the Swamp Fox, and his band of white and black raiders to cut British lines of communication between Charleston and the interior. And this guy was the inspiration for Mel Gibson's character and the Patriot. And so it mobilizes the over-the-mountain men, a rebel militia in Western Carolina who claim victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain on October 1780. By the end of 1780, these successes had persuaded most civilians that only the rebels could restore order. If rebel fortunes prosper in the partisan struggle, they falter in the conventional warfare being waged at the same time in the South. So in August 1780, the Continentals, commanded by Horatio Gates, lost a big battle to the British force at Camden, South Carolina. In the fall of 1780, Congress replaced Gates with Washington's candidate for the Southern Command, Nathaniel Green. He's a very energetic 38-year-old Rhode Islander and a veteran of the Northern campaigns. So Green bears out Washington's confidence by grasping the military situation in the South. 
He understood the needs of his 1,400 hungry, ragged, and demoralized troops and instructs Baron von Steuben to lobby Virginia for food and clothing. He understood the importance of the rebel militias and sent Lieutenant Colonel Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee to assist Francis Marion's raids. He understood the weariness of Southern civilians and prevented his men from plundering the countryside. Above all, Green understood that his forces could never hold the field against the whole British army. That led him to break the first, first rule of conventional warfare. He divided his army. In December 1780, he dispatched to Western South Carolina a detachment of 600 men under the command of Brigadier, Brigadier General Daniel Morgan of Virginia. Back at the British camp, Cornwallis worried that Morgan and his rebels, if left unchecked, might rally the entire backcountry against the British. However, Cornwallis reckoned he can't commit his entire army to pursuing Morgan's men, for then Green and his troops might just retake Charleston. The only solution was for Cornwallis to divide his army. He does this, sending Lieutenant Colonel Benaster Tarleton and 1,100 men west after Morgan. Cornwallis had played right into Green's hands. The rebel troops might be able to defeat the British army if they're split into two pieces. For two weeks, Morgan led Tarleton's troops on a breakneck chase all across the Carolina countryside. And at an open meadow called Cowpens, Morgan routes Tarleton's force. So now Cornwallis takes up the chase. Morgan and Green join forces. They agree to keep going north until the British army wears out. Cornwallis finally starts, stops at Hillsborough, North Carolina. A few local loyalists respond to his call for reinforcements. But to ensure that loyalist ranks remain thin, Green decided to make a show of force near the tiny village of Guilford Courthouse. So uh, the two sides join battle. Each sustains severe casualties and Green is then forced to retreat. But the high cost of victory convinced Cornwallis that he could not put down the rebellion in the Carolinas. Although Nathaniel Green's command provided the Continentals with effective leadership in the South, it's the resilience of the rebel militias that stopped the British offensive in the Carolinas. Many Continental Army officers complained about the militia's lack of discipline, its habit of melting away when homesickness set in, or harvest approach, its record of cowardice under fire in conventional engagements. But when set the task of ambushing supply trains and dispatch riders, carrying bands of local loyalists, or making forays against isolated British outposts, the militia comes through. Many Southern civilians refused to join the British or to provide the Redcoats with food and information because they knew once the British Army left their neighborhoods, the rebel militia would always be back. So the Continental Army in the South lost many conventional battles, but the militia kept the British from restoring political control over the backcountry. The British also lost in the Carolinas because they didn't seek greater support from the Southerners who would have fought for liberty with the British, African-American slaves. So black Americans, virtually all of them in bondage, make up about a third of the population between Delaware and Georgia. Since the beginning of the resistance to Britain, white Southerners had worried that the watchwords of liberty and equality would spread to the slave quarters. And gripped by fear of slave rebellions, Southern revolutionaries start to take precautions. Marylanders disarm black inhabitants and issue extra guns to the white militia. Charlestonians hang and then burn the body of Thomas Jeremiah, who was a free black convicted of spreading the word of others that the British were coming to help the poor Negroes. Southern whites 
fully expected the British to turn slave rebelliousness to their strategic advantage. As early as 1775, Virginia's royal governor, Lord Dunmore, confirmed white fears by offering to free any slave who joined the British. I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. But when Clinton invaded the South in 1779, he renews that offer. But in Britain, there's overwhelming opposition to organizing support among African Americans. British leaders dismissed Dunmore's ambitious scheme to raise a black army of 10,000 and another plan to create a sanctuary for black loyalists on the southeastern coast. Turning slaves against masters, they recognize, is not the way to retain the support of white southern loyalists. So even so, Southern fears of insurrection make the rebels reluctant to enlist black Americans as soldiers. At first, Congress barred African Americans from the Continental Army, but as the rebels became more desperate for manpower, that policy changed. Northern states actively encourage black enlistments, and in the Upper South, some states allow free men of color to join the army or permit slaves to substitute for the masters. Slaves themselves seek freedom from whichever side seems likely to grant it to them. There's perhaps 10,000 slaves that take up Dunmore's offer in 1775 and deserted their masters. Thousands more flocked to Clinton's forces after the fall of Charlestown. For many runaways, the hope of liberation proves an illusion. You know, some serve the British Army as laborers, spies, and soldiers. Many die of disease in army camps, upward of 27,000 by one estimate, or were sold back into slavery in the West Indies. About 5,000 black soldiers served in the Revolutionary Army in the hope of gaining freedom. In addition, the number of runaways to the North soars during the Revolution. In total, about 100,000 men and women, nearly a fifth of the total slave population, attempted to escape bondage. Their odysseys to freedom took some to far-flung destinations like loyalist communities, communities in Nova Scotia, a settlement established by the British in Sierra Leone on the West African coast, even the Botany Bay penal colony in Australia. So despite his losses in the Carolinas, Cornwallis still believes that he can score a decisive victory against the Continental Army. The theater he chose for that showdown was the Chesapeake. During the spring of 1781, he and his army joined forces along the Virginia coast with the hero of Saratoga and newly turned loyalist Benedict Arnold. Embarrassed by debt and disgusted by Congress's shabby treatment of the Continental Army, Arnold had started exchanging rebel secrets for British money in 1779 before defecting outright in 1780. By June of 1781, Arnold and Cornwallis were fortifying a site on the tip of a peninsula formed by the York and James Rivers, a place called Yorktown. Meanwhile, Washington and his franchise, the Comte de Rochambeau, met in Connecticut to plan a major attack. Rochambeau organized, or urged a coordinated land-sea assault on the Virginia coast. Washington insisted instead on a full-scale offensive against New York City. Just when the rebel commander was about to have his way, word arrived that a French fleet under the Comte de Grassi was sailing for the Chesapeake to blockade Cornwallis by sea. So Washington's continentals head south. By the end of September, 7,800 Frenchmen 5,700 Continentals and 3,200 militia had sandwiched Yorktown between the Devil of Annihilate Army and the Deep Blue Sea of French warships. So the British Navy did arrive, but seven days after Cornwallis surrendered to the rebels on October 19, 1781. It need not have ended at Yorktown, but timing made all the difference. At the end of 1781 in 
early in 1782, the British Army received setbacks in other theaters of the war. India, the West Indies, Florida, the French and Spanish were everywhere in Europe as well, gathering in the English Channel, planning a major offensive against Gibraltar. The cost of the fighting was already enormous. British leaders recognized that the rest of the empire was at stake and set about cutting their losses in America. So the Treaty of Paris, signed on September 3rd, 1783, was a diplomatic triumph for the American negotiators being John Jay, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. They dangled before Britain the possibility that a generous settlement might weaken American ties to France. The British jump at this. They recognize the independence of the United States and agree to ample boundaries for the new nation. The Mississippi River on the west, the 31st parallel on the south, and the present border of Canada on the north. American negotiators then persuaded a skeptical France to approve the treaty by arguing that, as allies, they were bound to present a united front to the British. When the French finally persuaded Spain, the third member of the alliance, to reduce its demands on Britain for territorial concessions, the territory became an accomplished fact. So the Spanish settled for Florida and Menorca, an island in the Mediterranean. Those present at Yorktown on that afternoon watched as the British second-in-command to Cornwallis surrendered his superior sword. So he offered the sword first in a face-saving gesture to the French commander Rochambeau, who politely refused and pointed to Washington. Before the American commander-in-chief, out of a mixture of military protocol, nationalistic pride, and perhaps even wit, pointed to his second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln. So just kind of as a review here, the American Revolution brings independence to Britain's former colonies after an armed struggle that begins in 1775 and concludes with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. When the Second Continental Congress convened in spring of 1775, many of the delegates still hoped for reconciliation, even as they were approving the creation of the Continental Army. This Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence July 4, 1776, hoping that they could count on a majority of Americans to support the revolution. The British scored a string of victories in the North throughout 76 and 77, capturing New York and Philadelphia. The British suffered a big defeat at the Battle of Saratoga in October 77. It prompts France to openly ally with the American rebels. Soon thereafter, it opens up a new phase of the war. By 1780, Britain aims to win the war by claiming the South and capture both Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina. The Continental Army in the South, led by Nathaniel Greene, foiled the British strategy and Cornwall surrendered at Battle of Yorktown in 1781. So except for the first year of fighting, the rank and file of the Continental Army was drawn from poorest Americans whose need for food, clothing, and shelter are neglected by the Continental Congress. So that concludes this podcast on the American Revolution, folks. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for more. The next podcast is going to be looking at this creation of a new country. Later, y'all.